happened, I'm fine um, and I'd, I'd like us to address it, what is a really important topic tonight. I wanted to start out by telling you about a character named Julian the Apostate. Anybody heard of Julian the Apostate? Up the back there there's a couple, excellent, well-educated youngsters. Julian, do you want to tell us who he was? Maybe not. No, it's okay. Julian the Apostate was the, the Roman Emperor from 361 to 363 and he's called the Apostate because by the time he became Emperor, Christianity had gone from being an illegal religion persecuted by the Roman Empire to being the dominant face of the, the Roman Empire. And Julian the Apostate believed in the old pagan gods and he said, we want to get the pagan gods back into people's hearts. We want to get the people, pagan gods back into people's minds. How are we going to do it? He said, I know what we'll do. We'll copy the tactics of the Christians. And then he said, this was what the Christians did that won over the hearts and minds of people. They loved them. They loved them brilliantly. They loved them well. The ancient cities were, you know, buildings tacked one on top of the other and plagues would sweep through those cities and take out literally, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. Sometimes a third of the population of a city would die when a plague swept through. And the Christians became renowned because instead of running away to the countryside if they were wealthy, instead of pushing the sick out their doors, they went out in the streets, they gathered the sick in and brought them into their homes and cared for them and nursed them back to health. Many Christians lost their lives in the process. But they said, our job as followers of Jesus is to love our neighbour. That's the biggest call on our life. And Julian the Apostate said, that's why they won. They did it and we don't. Well, 2,000 years later, I think sometimes the church has to be reminded that that's what makes us distinct. Jesus didn't say, you'll know me, they'll know me, know, know you're my disciples because of your great theology. He didn't say they'll know you're my disciples because of your great worship, even though that's fantastic and I loved it tonight, it was such a blessing to me. He said, they'll know you're my disciples because of the love you have for one another. And when we come to the topic of refugees, at the end of the day, the distinctive contribution that I think the church will make is to say we are people who say love must win. Love must reign over all else. We're going to explore what that means tonight in terms of part of the refugee program, but to help you understand what people are dealing with, I'm going to show you a video clip. Um, This is of a refugee tells his story and it's not at all unusual but it is tragic. Thanks. There is no such thing as an economic refugee. Let me repeat that again. There is no such thing as an economic refugee. By definition a refugee is somebody like Sassima, somebody who has fled persecution and who has been assessed by an international authority as being a person who has fled persecution and can't go back home. There are 22 million refugees in the world today and every single one of them has a story like Sassimus to tell. So how do we respond? What do we do? I want to focus in tonight by asking a question. What if Jesus had come to Australia as a refugee? Because I didn't realise this until a little while ago. Jesus was actually a refugee for part of his life. Did you know that? Let me read to you this text. Now after the three wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. 
For Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he, killed, he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were under two years of age, according to the time that he'd learned from the wise men. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking this child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. History is filled with ruthless, powerful governments that persecute their people. And Herod was one of them. He, he was an astonishingly brutal and ruthless tyrant. He had squads of um, spies right throughout the land. So you never knew if you said something against Herod, whether it would get back and you'd find yourself in prison and disappeared. He engaged in brutal acts of violence whenever he felt his reign was threatened. And with Jesus, he thought, well, he's been proclaimed the king of the Jews. He's a threat. So I'm going to hunt him down and I'm going to kill him. So God says to Joseph, get up and go. And Herod, you get an idea of how bloodthirsty he is, he's so infuriated that he just says, kill them all. Take out every child under the age of two in Bethlehem and we might just still catch this Jesus. When Joseph, Mary and Jesus crossed the border into Egypt, they became what we today would call refugees. People who have fled persecution have had to leave their country in order to find safety somewhere else. And they follow the pattern that is typical of most... Sorry, I'll just turn this on. Most refugees, they are faced with threat and danger. They flee their country and then they returned when it was safe. That's what most refugees in the world want to do. They're not actually hanging out to come to Australia. They're actually hanging out to go back home. And most will stay where they are as long as it takes until it's safe for them to return home. But what happens if it never becomes safe? What happens if you have multiple generations of dictatorial governments? Well, that's when refugees have to find somewhere else to, to be safe, a country to which they've fled or a country like Australia. So I want to ask the question today, what if Herod hadn't died? And let's imagine the situation's come forward 2,000 years and what if Jesus showed up in Australia and said, I need protection? Or Joseph and Mary said, we need protection for our son. What would we have done? Well, there's basically two ways Jesus could have come to us. The first, this is the route that every refugee takes. They start out persecuted, they then become an asylum seeker an asylum seeker means they've come out of a country and they've said, I'm persecuted, I can't go back home. And, but they've made a claim, but nobody's verified whether it's true or not. That makes them an asylum seeker. Their claim then gets processed, usually by one of the governing authorities in the country or by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And if they confirm that the person has been persecuted and can't go back home, then they are classified as a refugee. And then they have to find a durable solution, which we saw this morning was there is one of three possibilities for refugees. One is that you can go back home when it's safe to do so. One is that you settle down in a country to which you first fled. And the third is that you get resettled in a country like Australia. We also saw that those options aren't open to many refugees. So let's imagine Jesus has been an asylum seeker. He's been classed as a refugee by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees there in Egypt. 
and he can't stay. The Egyptian government won't have him there so he applies to come to Australia. Well, he's got a one in 200 chance of getting accepted. He misses out the first year, he misses out the second year, he misses out the third year, he misses out the fourth year, he misses out the fifth year, he misses out the sixth year, he misses out the seventh year, the eighth year, the ninth year, the tenth year, the eleventh year, the twelfth year, right up to the twentieth year, just keeps missing out. Now he's a young man and they say, well, we've still got to get to safety. No one will take us. So instead of applying to come to Australia as a refugee, someone who's already been processed and is brought into Australia under our refugee program, he gets on a boat and he shows up on our shores. How would he be received? I want to get you to answer this question. What is Australia's policy towards boat arrivals? What happens to those who arrive by boat? Call it out. We turn them around if we can in international waters and we send them back. So on this scenario we would turn Jesus around and we'd send him back to where he came from to potentially be executed by Herod. But he might slip through the net, the boat might make it to Australian territory. What happens then? He gets put in a detention centre. He'll be put in a detention centre on Manus, well not on Manus Island anymore, on Nauru and wherever else we're going to be able to find and he would be left there. What would happen to him while he's in detention? Let's imagine he's come out here while he's still a a young child. What's the impact on him while he's in detention? He misses out on... Well, he'll get an education because we do ensure that there's schooling, but it certainly won't be the schooling that an average Australian school kid would get. Yeah, he's going to be psychologically destroyed in all likelihood. The, I mentioned this morning that the, Dr Peter Young, who's the head of psychiatric services for the, com- the company that's employed to provide medical care to our detention centres, actually said last year that in his opinion the system was designed deliberately to break people psychologically. And the way it works is you just leave them with no hope. See, if I commit a crime, I go to prison and I know I'll be out in five years or ten years or twenty years, whatever the sentence is, If you're a refugee, you've committed no crime. You actually are permitted under international law to show up to any country in the world and apply for asylum. So you have committed no crime, yet you get get locked away and they say, we don't know when you're going to be released. Might be next month, might be next year, might be five years, might be ten years, might be never. And the uncertainty kills people psychologically, kills them emotionally, kills their hope. And all those who work with refugees say it's just absolutely soul-destroying. What else will happen to him while he's in the detention centre? He'll be subject to violence. There's high rates of violence in detention centres, which is what happens when you get a lot of people who've been traumatised and are feeling absolute extreme levels of hopelessness. They do things like that guy did last week, set themselves on fire as a form of protest because they say, this is, I've got nothing else left. There's high rates of sexual violence occurring in the centres. We're going to do that to Jesus? I think that's the question we have to ask, isn't it? 
If we're going to do it to anyone, would we be prepared to do it to Jesus? So we know that the, we know the whole setup destroys people. We know it's, it's harmful to them. So you think there must be a really good reason why we do it. So what, what, what is the reason we have this policy? Call it out. What, why do we have this policy? What do you hear the politicians saying to you? We're protecting our country from what? Terrorism. From terrorism. You know, there's not one refugee being convicted of a terror offence who's stepped off a boat radicalised. But there have been a couple of people who were refugees who came as children and who were radicalised while they were here in Australia and were involved in terror plots, but they're massively outnumbered by Australian-born people. So the argument that we're at risk of terror from refugees is just demonstrably not proven and untrue. So what else, what other reasons? There's other reasons it gets cited. To protect our standard of living, yeah. So, you know, if we welcome too many refugees into the country, they might take our jobs. Um, it's an interesting one because there's actually a whole economic argument that works the other way that says that when a refugee, when somebody comes to your country as a migrant or a refugee, they need schools, they need food, they need clothing, they need all kinds of services. So you actually create demand and create jobs. But... It's economically contested where the balance lies. What else? What's the big one no one's mentioned yet? Stop the people smugglers. And why do we want to stop the people smugglers? Because people are drowning at sea. This is the one argument that would seem to have some currency, isn't it? We know that over the last 10 years about 1,500 people at least have died trying to get to Australia by boat. And so the argument goes that if we lock people away, if we treat them poorly, then that'll provide a disincentive to others to get onto boats and they'll stop coming. So I want you to test that policy. I want you to ask, we've stopped the boats from coming to Australia, that's absolutely true. But have we stopped people dying at sea? Let me put it back into the question of Jesus. What would Jesus' parents have done if Egypt rejected them? They'd have gone somewhere else, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have sat down and said, well, let's wait for uh, Herod to come and get us. You know, Egypt's knocked us back, so we'll just sit here and, and, and wait until our son's executed. They would have done whatever it takes. They would have gone to whatever country would take them. And that's the problem with the argument that the boat people, by stopping the boats, would have stopped the deaths at sea because we haven't actually addressed the root cause of the problem, which is that they're being persecuted, they're unable to stay where they are and they need to find somewhere safe. So all we've done is actually push the boat somewhere else in the world. And we know that because if you look at the, the data, the numbers of people who are making dangerous journeys across the world are going up. Except now they're going across places like the Mediterranean and other oceans where just as many people are dying as when they came to Australia. That makes sense. Don't believe the argument that stopping the boats equates to stopping the deaths. It doesn't. The only way you stop the deaths is to address the problem, which is people's lack of protection. Yep. Okay, so let me draw some conclusions here. Our approach to asylum seekers coming by boat 
is destroying the mental health of many of them, denies freedom to people innocent of any crime, never stand for the description of refugees as illegals. It's just simply not true. Under international law, anybody has the right to seek asylum in another country. It's not preventing death by drowning, but it is pushing the responsibility to protect onto other nations because when we say we opt out, it means somebody else has to assume a greater share of the burden. How do you respond to that as a follower of Jesus? I'm going to let you sit and uncomfortably stew for a minute on that. This wasn't planned, but I think this is how we respond. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, said Jesus. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. If you're not prepared to turn Jesus away, to turn around the boat that Jesus is on, as a follower of Jesus you can't be prepared to turn around any boat. If you're not prepared to lock Jesus up in detention, as a follower of Jesus you can't be prepared to lock anybody up in detention. I come back to Julian the Apostate. What made these Christians so different was their love. Not just for their own but for everybody. I think we need to to reinvest ourselves in love for the refugees. To start saying to our governments, it's not good enough. The solutions have got to be better. Now on Tuesday night we're having a session here at what time? 7.30 where we're going to look at what those solutions might be. So I've talked at high level principle tonight but we're going to take a look at the nitty gritty. What would, it, what would it look like in practice? We're going to try and answer the questions you have because you'll have all kinds of questions floating around in your mind after tonight. But the thing I would encourage you to go home with this ringing in your ears is these words of Jesus. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I'm going to pray and then we're going to share some, some more songs, I believe. Lord Jesus, it is really arresting to remember that you yourself were a refugee. That our God is the refugee God. That our Saviour is the refugee Saviour. Forgive us for those times that we have 
thought poorly of those who are refugees. Forgive us of those times we've bought into the myths and the lies that are spun about refugees. Help us to be people who see in the refugee who's hungry, you. Who see in the child who's afraid because they've got nowhere to go, the face of our Saviour. Who see in the person who's being flung from pillar to post and told by country after country, you can't come here. Help us to see your face and help us to love them just as we would love you. Help us to be as indignant about the treatment that they receive as we would be if it was the treatment you were receiving. And help us to be as committed and passionate about making a difference as we would be if it was you who was being treated that way. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let me encourage you to come along on Tuesday night. Um, that will be a chance, you'll have lots of chance to ask your questions. We'll try and answer what we can. But in particular, we'll look at the nitty gritty of how does this work out in practice and um, what can you do to make a difference. Thanks. Have some, um, have some soccer. Um, other than that, if you're looking for prayer, come down the front. There'll be some people here. Um, other than that, God bless you guys. Have a great week. Thank you.